To the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, it's the first weekend of October coming up, and it's a heck of a slate of games in college football. There are so many important games. We, I mean, I was picking the ten games for our picks column, and there were ones that any other week would be a no-brainer that I couldn't even fit in there. Um, which one are you most interested in? I'm interested in a lot of them, to be honest. I, you know, the thing that I would preface this by saying is some of the games that I'm most interested in about um, have some actually surprisingly big spreads. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I think because Arkansas has been a revelation the first month of the season, now they're going on the road to Georgia. Arkansas is coming off what felt like a big game against AM. The spread's 18 and a half. That is a big you know, that is a big number for anything involving a top 10 team that's not playing Alabama. Right. And um, so I, I, to me that I'm curious about that. Uh, I will, we'll touch on these more in depth. I mean, to answer your question, I'm very curious to see how Michigan's offense does against what's the, what's the number one run defense, in the country, Wisconsin's not been good at all on offense, but they have been able to stop the one thing Michigan has really lived on. So I don't want to say if Michigan wins this game, on the road at Wisconsin that it checks the box and, and they're for real, but I think it's a test. And then to me, you know, obviously have the Kiffin Saban matchup, but the one that I'm very interested in is Cincinnati's coming off a bye week. Notre Dame's coming off playing Wisconsin and blowing them out. Cincinnati's actually a one and a half point favorite on the road against Notre Dame. Who's undefeated. Are you surprised by the spread even? I'm surprised it's not higher. Um, also, I'm surprised that this game is not getting more of a top billing. I understand that Georgia-Arkansas is also a top 10 game, and Arkansas is a hot story right now, and that's where game day is going. Um, but we've been talking about the Cincinnati-Notre Dame game all offseason as the game that if Cincinnati wins, first if they beat Indiana, which they did, and then if Cincinnati beats Notre Dame, if they beat both those teams on the road, that low, you know, whoa, we've suddenly got a, a path for our first ever group of five team to make the playoff. And now that it's here, you know, before the season, I would say that's that's going to be an uphill task for the Bearcats. But I don't think people realize Notre Dame is 4-0 and they're in the top 10. And, and, you know, they had a very, what ended up being a lopsided win against Wisconsin, a little bit deceiving the final score. Bruce, do you know that Notre Dame is ranked... 128th in the country in rushing, 128th out of 130 teams, 2.3 yards per carry, and 129th in, they've allowed 20 sacks more than any team in the country besides Akron. And they're going up against Cincinnati, who is known for their defense. <laughs> Sell me on why Notre Dame can win this game. Uh, because they played in a lot more big games, to be honest. Um, so the idea that Cincinnati might just not might be might be I'm, uh, I'm selling you on by the like, I think I think Cincinnati's good. I know they have a lot of athletes, especially on defense, and I know Desmond Ritter. I think is the better quarterback in this game. I will sell you why 
look, I'm picking Cincinnati to win the game just like you are, but I can see why there's some hesitance because, you know, we're basically giving Cincinnati a lot of juice off of last year. And the fact that they beat an Indiana team who, by the way, hasn't looked good this year, they got blown out at Iowa. They barely beat Western Kentucky and they actually outgained Cincinnati in that game and were seemed to be, you know, handling it pretty good until their best defensive player got a targeting call and that kind of changed the game. So I, I get why there is some hesitance on Cincinnati, you know, looking a little deeper into it. I think Cincinnati is good, but I think they're, you know, like I want to see how they do against, are they going to light up the Notre Dame defense? I mean, I'm not sure. You know, like I, I get why people are like, yeah, Notre Dame's offensive line has been uncharacteristically uh, underwhelming. Their run game, as you said, and with the backs they have back, you know, Kyron Williams is a, was a borderline All-American candidate. They have not got the run game going. They, they got a bunch of points in either the return game with Chris Tyree or on pick sixes la- last week. Um, you know, I, I'm interested to see how this one plays out. Now, it, to me, a big factor here is Cincinnati is coming off a of bye week. So they had a week to an added week to really prepare and, and get ready for this. Um, I don't know. I mean, would you be surprised if Notre Dame won this game by double digits? By double digits? Yeah, I mean, yes, it'd be I, like, I, you know, 27. I'm not saying Notre 17. Dame can't win. Um, they're still a very good team playing in their, in their home stadium. But yeah, I, I guess if I mean, if they win by double digits, then it tells me that the because you're right in the Indiana game, Indiana basically dominated the first half, and then Cincinnati took over in the second half. So if Notre Dame ends up winning big, it tells me that that first half was more indicative of Cincinnati 2021 that it wasn't just them uh, brushing it off and and pulling away in the second half. The way Notre Dame would win this game is probably much the way they they beat Wisconsin. They would they would cause turnovers, maybe pick off Desmond Ritter a couple times, big, big plays in special teams, because they're not going to be able to, I don't think, sustain long touchdown drives against with with, with the um, with the lack of a running game. Uh, it's going to have to be hold Cincinnati down, chip away, get a pick six at some point, something like that. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second, but now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. 
They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Before we get to the intrigue of Lane Kiffin trying to become the first Nick Saban protege in 24 tries to beat Alabama, I, I do want to get into that. But uh, one of the other games that I think kind of is is a sneaky, I don't know, sneaky good, good game, but it's actually Friday night. It's Maryland, who is undefeated at 4-0, against Iowa, who's number five in the country. That's my upset special. Oh, okay. So I'm glad I brought this up. I know you're, you've been a little skeptical of just how good Iowa is. I know you buy into their defense, I think. But so are you all in on the Terps? Do you think the Terps are a legit top 10 team? It's more that I don't think that. And by the way, we were the first ones to say after those big wins against Indiana and Iowa State that Iowa deserved to have that really high ranking. But as we get further removed from it and both of those teams they played have been disappointing and then to see them in a one score game against Colorado State well into the game um, I don't have a lot of faith I always got to get their offense going I mean great deep you can't expect that you're gonna have two pick sixes every week or or you know all the turnovers they caused in those big games and I thought you know Spencer Petrus would be better. I thought their running game would be better. Right now, Iowa is 122nd in the country in yards per play. Would you have guessed that Talia Tag- Tagovailoa is the top-rated passer in the Big Ten? He's got really good receivers. It doesn't shock me that he, you know, he's got really good receivers, and he is talented. Um, he's completing 75% no. of his passes, 1,340 yards, 10 touchdowns, and one pick. Now he's going against a really good defense. He's not. I don't, it would be surprising to me if he throws for like 350 yards. But it's to me, it's uh, they're going to score some points. And Iowa to this point has not demonstrated that they can do the same. Yeah, I think a big question is going to be: Can he avoid turnovers against them? I mean, I think really that's as much the deal as anything else. How well can they take care of the ball, Iowa? just really, really bottles you up. And I think it gets frustrating for for opponents. Um, you, you look at them, they lead, or at least they're tied for the conference lead in uh, interceptions. Actually, they do lead because Nebraska's played one more game. They both picked off six, six passes. But you you look at what, they, what they're able to do, it's just such a problem for you. Phil Parker does not get enough credit for what he's doing with Iowa. And they have some really good players at all three levels of the defense. So, uh, gutsy pick. I wouldn't go all. I wouldn't pick the upset, but I do think it's going to be a really interesting game uh, tomorrow night. At you know, it's crazy looking at this Big Ten passing rating. First of all, it tells you like there are not a lot of good quarterbacks in the Big Ten this year. But what's crazy is if you think about who were kind of the most, who had the highest expectations coming into the season. Michael Penix and Graham Mertz are the two lowest rated passers in the Big Ten. 
Tagovailoa, Sean Clifford, Peyton Thorne, or one, two, three, CJ Stroud, four, Adrian Martinez, five. And then on the opposite end, Panics and Graham Mertz. Well, actually, um, yeah, that is interesting. You know, another name that's way down there, Tanner Morgan. Two years ago, yep. Tanner Morgan was arguably the most improved quarterback in the country. They won 11 games, and he's thrown three touchdowns in four games and is completing under 53% of his passes. In 2019, Tanner Morgan was the number four rated quarterback in the whole country. It was one Joe Burrow, two Jalen Hurts, three Justin Fields, four Tanner Morgan. And two years later, you know, I mean, look, that he had some, he had two phenomenal receivers on that team. And as those guys cycled out and there have been injuries this year, he's not looking remotely like himself. Um, Okay, let's get to the game you mentioned, the Lane Kiffin-Alabama-Nick Saban Bowl. Uh, Last year's game, if you remember early in the season, 63-48, it was nobody could stop anybody. Uh, It seemed like Alabama wasn't prepared for Ole Miss's tempo. I think Ole Miss this year is probably an even better offense. Matt Corral's been there for in the system for another year. Um, we just don't know. Their defense was so terrible last year. We just don't know yet if they've gotten better enough to stop Alabama, to stop Bryce Young, who's been playing very well. Yeah, and I, I think on, on really, on, I don't think he has, they have to stop him. I just think they have to be able to slow somebody down because I don't think they'll be able to to stop Bryce Young in the offense, and he has a really good offensive line. I was curious. I haven't seen anybody. This is a big spread. I think it started out at 20. It's around two touchdowns now. I was expecting somebody I know to go, I'm picking, I'm picking Ole Miss. Like, I think there are some – I talked to some coaches in the SEC who were like – think Lane Kiffin has a probably think Lane Kiffin has a better chance to pull this upset off more than a lot of sports writers do. I think they watched the Alabama Florida game and thought Alabama was much more flawed than people probably felt like they were. They looked like they were gassed late in the game. They didn't look kind of like what people would expect. And I think because their offense was so good last year, I don't think this I think this offense is good. I don't think it's quite to the level of what you had. You know, you had Devontae Smith at one point. You had Jalen Waddell in there. You had Najee Harris. You had the best offensive line in college football. Um, I don't know if it's quite at that level. Like, I would not... Which would you be more surprised about? Arkansas going into to Georgia and beating them or Ole Miss beating Alabama? I would be less surprised about Ole Miss beating Alabama. I certainly considered picking it. Um my hesitation, I first of all, I think this will be, if, if Alabama is going to lose a, a game in the SEC this year, it would be this one. Um, it's just such a different kind of matchup. But my hesitation is simply this. He, you, you know Saban has had, you know, he probably assigned one or two analysts who spent the last 12 months studying Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin exclusively. There's, he is not going to let his former assistant, his, his brash former assistant, embarrass his defense again. That's, that's my only hesitation. I think, I think if last year's game had not been the way it was, maybe he comes out, it's, it's better for them, you know, better circumstances for them to, to be, to pull a surprise here. Now, I do think 
Um, I think whichever quarterback wins this game will come out of it the new Heisman favorite. And it's a chance for Matt Corral to really show the country why he's now kind of the, the, the hot, trendy NFL draft quarterback. But we do know he's interception prone, or at least he has been in the past, and that's a defense that can do that. Yeah, towards that end, he had a, he had threw a 14 picks last year. 13 of them came in three games, and 11 of them came in two. So when he's been off, he has really been off. And I think that's the issue is when something bad happens in the game, if but likely when something bad happens in the game, how does he respond to it? And that will be interesting because, you know, our, our buddy Andy Staples did a really good job uh, of writing about Matt Corral this week. That's the best story I've read on Matt Corral. Not to say um, there's been a bunch of them. There's been a lot of good stories. But I thought what really came true was just a total, like a Favre-like belief in his skill set and sometimes forcing balls and maybe to be an ultra-aggressive in it. And we'll see how that plays out. Um I'm interested. Now, by the way, the thing you said about, about Saban and designated a couple of analysts to study to study Ole Miss's offense for the last year, I mean, that was the case with Johnny Manziel when Johnny Manziel beat him the first time. Johnny Manziel torched him even worse the second time. They didn't he win did. the game, but he was like 600 yards of offense against them. I remember, it was a long time ago, but I remember the narrative leading up to that one was Saban's going to have all sorts of wrinkles ready. There's no way he's going to be able to do that again. And it was basically just like whoever whoever scores last. Um, now, what was different fact, on that, and I'm, I don't know if we're going to get this part of it, was Mike Evans was the go-to guy. And they, because I was with AM the week of that game, they were like, they're not stopping Mike Evans. They targeted one of the cornerbacks by like a half hour into the game. That guy was like on the sideline and... <laughs> you know, well, he kind of excommunicated essentially. But I think, you know, I, I'm very fascinated. It, nothing would surprise me in this game. It also wouldn't surprise me if if Alabama's up 24 to three, you know, at halftime too. Yeah, know? that's a very wide range of possibilities. The Arkansas Georgia game, I think that spread is very high, and. While I did pick Georgia, although this was now the third time I'm picking against Arkansas, so maybe they'll make me look dumb again. Are we sure Georgia is this? I mean, that's the kind of spread that I'm used to seeing, you know, Alabama get when they remember when Alabama would play like a highly ranked Texas A&M team and still be favored by 22. Um, that's what this looks like to me. And I think I don't. I don't think Georgia's really been tested yet. We thought they were in the first game, but now we notice that, or now we know that Clemson's offense is just a complete mess. And then since then, they've been beating up on the likes of UAB, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. So I'm just really interested to see KJ Jefferson, dual threat quarterback. Um, will we? Will Will the Georgia defense look a little less? You know, right now they've been unbelievable. They've been dominant every week. Will that will will Arkansas be able to you know maybe expose them a little bit, especially that secondary that was a big question coming into the season, in a way they haven't been yet. Now uh, Georgia is expected to get Tyke Smith, who's probably one of their best defensive backs. He was the safety who transferred from West Virginia in. Um, he's missed the first month of the season. I think that would 
certainly help. Um, you know, I, I wondered about how much you know, Sam Pittman's knowledge of Kirby Smart and George, obviously he worked there, you know, how much that would help him in this game. They played last year. It wasn't close. It was at Arkansas. It was 37 to 10. Um, that's, that was obviously his first game. The one thing is, uh, you know, it was like a, wasn't like Georgia ran it down their throats. I think the, I think it was 120 rushing yards for them. So it was really the fact that, that, uh, they couldn't get much going offensively and it was all kind of over before it started. So yeah, I, I'm definitely want to see like if Georgia loses, if I'm sorry, if Arkansas loses this game, like. 31 to 13 I I don't think it undoes a lot of the confidence you know like the kind of belief that we now have in Sam Pittman in Arkansas but man you know if they (laughs) this is a big if but if Arkansas were to win this game I think Arkansas would deserve to be in the top three at that point if not we know what it reminds me of the year with the year Mississippi State and Dak Prescott kind of came out of nowhere they, I remember in like a three-week span, they beat a top 10 LSU team very handily on the road, came back and beat a top 10 A&M team that would turn out to be very overrated, but they were top 10 at the time. And then I was there for number two Auburn versus number three Mississippi State in Starkville. And once they won that, they were number one. This would be kind of similar. I don't know if they, I don't think they'd move to number one, but my goodness, like you'd have to, if they beat Georgia... To me, they're a national title contender, which seems very hard to believe given where that program was two years ago. But that's how could you not say that? I would hope if that's the case for for Sam Pittman and Arkansas, that they finish the year a lot better than that old that Mississippi State team did because they didn't even end up in the top 10. So. Is that right? Yeah. I remember they lost to... They got blown out by Georgia Tech in the bowl game, and they finished oh, yeah. 12. They, they, I mean, they played Alabama. They it was a, It's kind of hard to believe this now, but I also covered that this year. That year, it was like November, early November, Mississippi State at Alabama, and Mississippi State went into that game number one, not Alabama. Alabama handled them. I think they then lost the Egg Bowl, too. They lost so. the Egg Bowl by, like... A freeze beat them. I think they lost the Egg Bowl by two or three touchdowns. I mean, I think the reason Arkansas is such a big underdog is that you generally expect these teams that, I mean, Arkansas recruits well. They don't recruit like Alabama and Georgia, and you just kind of assume they'll regress to the mean at some point, whether that's this week or later in the season. But I don't want to. I don't want to rain on that parade now. Give me. We got some mailbag questions to get to. Give me one more game. Give me one more game that you're like would not be surprised if the underdog pulls it off. Uh, I would not be surprised if Michigan <laughs> beat Wisconsin. Uh, can we really count that? That's a one and a half okay. point spread. Um, hang on a second. I'll give you some options: Texas TCU, uh, no, LSU th- Auburn, Florida eight and a half at Kentucky, Oklahoma ten and a half at K State. I'll take. I'll, you already hit one for me. Um, I'm. Okay. A, I will take LSU Auburn. LSU is a three and a half point favorite. Uh, Auburn has maybe the most talented running back in the country in Tank Bigsby. I think they can run the ball. I don't think LSU can. LSU's offensive line has been really, really patchwork. I mean, you got to remember, they have a new offensive line coach who got there after spring ball. He got there in the summer. So you got guys trying to learn 
different techniques, new techniques. You have a bunch of injuries up front, and now you have them going up against the team that leads the SEC and TFLs. I think this is going to be a this is going to be a real scuffle. I know it's a I know that Max Johnson is playing well. I know that he's got some really good receivers. Um, you know, I think if LSU can't get some run game going, I think they're going to have a hard time beating Auburn. I really do, just because I think Auburn has a really big time running back, and I think that's going to cause. I think that will pre- present some challenges for them. I'm going to give you a little bit of an upset alert game that was that didn't even make our, our list of games we picked this week, and it's the one taking place in my backyard. Uh, Stanford, eight point underdog against Oregon. By the way, I did pick uh, that game. <laughs> what's that? I did pick that game. Oh, you did? What'd you do? Uh, I took Oregon more than I took Oregon to, to cover and then some to cover and they maybe they'll blow them out by three touchdowns I don't know but Oregon hasn't played that well outside of that Ohio State game um that Arizona game and Arizona is terrible was a close game in the fourth quarter Stanford two and two definitely mediocre definitely bad on defense the worst run but, defense in the Pac-12 but Tanner McKee has quietly been really impressive since he took over as the starting job took over as the starting quarterback um in week two and we saw you know they did win at ohio state but we saw cj stroud throw for a bunch of yards on them i will say if Kayvon thibodeau really does come back this week i'll take that off the upset board probably but just something to keep an eye on um i don't i think oregon is a really good team i still have them going to the playoff i don't expect them to run the table in the pac-12 they're going to stub their toe at some point I'm surprised you didn't go with uh, BC at Clemson. I thought about it. That's a it was like a 15 point spread. Uh, I think Jeff Halfley's done a terrific job. He's now playing with his backup quarterback. Um, I think the honestly, I thought about it pretty hard, and then I was like, you know, they just had this huge emotionally draining overtime win. I just wonder about like kind of an adrenaline dump for them to to get back up. Clemson. Uh, our colleague Grace Rayner and I spent a bunch of time working on this story about what exactly is wrong with the Clemson offense and also what can they do to try to fix it at this point. And I don't feel very confident in Clemson at this point. I feel like Clemson's probably headed to eight and four ish or nine and three. Wow. And that's in a really, really bad ACC. But I think that's just kind of right now where Clemson's at offensively. I highly recommend people read that story that you and Grace did on The Athletic. And if you're not a subscriber, theathletic.com slash the audible for 50% off. Um, so I think it's very easy from a distance to say, oh, well, they lost Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne. Of course, they're, they're not as good anymore. I did not, you know, when, they, when they're, you know, they've been, they've spent the last few years just rolling people. I never stopped to be like, huh, I wonder if their offense has become too predictable um, you guys have some, some, both some quotes from, a, from analysts and opposing coaches, but also some pretty eye-opening advanced stats. Uh, and, and shout out to our guy Jason Starrett, who does such a great job uh, mining some of our um, data sources to find this stuff. It, it just never occurred to me that, that Clemson's offensive scheme is so simple. And, and when you have Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne, you can map, you know, maybe you don't need much of a scheme, but there's a stat in that story that just blew me away about how little opponents respect the run. 
uh, re respect uh, uh, excuse me how little opponents respect Clemson's running game this year without Travis Etienne which is this opponents used five or more defensive backs on 59% of Clemson snaps last season but are using five or more defensive backs 99% of Clemson snaps this se season the play action pass won't be effective until defenses respect Clemson's run game which currently ranks number 99 nationally these teams like NC State are going out there and saying, go ahead, run the ball, try. And they can't do it. And they're Clemson. It's crazy. Yeah, one of the things that, that uh, I heard from one of the coaches in the conference was they just, not only was Travis Etienne one of the best backs in the history of the a ACC, but I think they look at, Will Shipley came in, he was a huge recruit. There, there are coaches in the league who feel like he's, they didn't think he was the guy who scared them the most. They thought Lynn J. Dixon, who's no longer in the program, was actually a more dangerous running back for them uh, to deal with. And they just feel like there's just not a lot of wattage in the backfield at this point. And by the way, Will Shipley's injured and probably out for about a month now. The offensive line is not good. It has not been physical. And then you can get into, as you said in our story, there's a lot from both Dan Orlovsky and RG3 Robert Griffin, who had called for ESPN the last two games about what they saw, why the offense, as RG3 put it, was archaic. And they're just not giving uh, the quarterback, as well as the receivers, a lot of flexibility to get guys open and to get a read on what defenses are doing. Orlovsky went so far, and this is something I, I heard from some NFL assistant coaches last year when they evaluated Trevor Lawrence. This is, he echoed uh, this week some of the comments that I heard on that was the scheme that they run, they, didn't, they thought it was pretty limited and didn't help him development-wise. Now, look, he was still the first pick in the draft, but he is definitely struggling in a big way in the NFL in terms of some of the reads and some of the things that are quite honestly seem to be really new to him. Um, and so I think there's a lot of layers to that. And again, I don't think Clemson's going to all of a sudden like fall apart and won't win another, uh, won't be a playoff team ever again. I don't think it's the case. But they have got to do what appears to be some adjusting in terms of how they call it and what they can do, especially for DJ Uyangalele, who has a big arm and is a big physical guy. But you know, you may see you may see him having to shoulder more of the run game on himself if they're just going to you know he's right now their second leading rusher, by the way, and. He's the leading rusher of the guys available to them. So I'm interested to see what Jeff Halfley, how he tries to attack them. Um, and I, to me, what happened to Clemson, and I'm not just I'm not saying this to necessarily prop up the story Grace and I did, but I think what has happened to Clemson is actually the biggest story of the first month of this season. Yeah, I mean they're 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 you know just last year when they lost at Notre Dame, it was the first time they lost a regular season game in three years. So to go from that to you saying you think they're going to go eight and four um, is stunning. It's absolutely stunning. We thought Dabo had a, just a machine going there. So, you know, they have time to get better, I suppose. But that story definitely, that story raised concern in terms of, okay, we know the offensive line struggling. We know, 
like for, I, I don't want me to keep talking about this, but it is really interesting. Travis Etienne, I think, was so underappreciated because of his the way they would use him in the pass game and on screens. And you think about, okay, how did DJ go from being, throwing for the most yards in, of any quarterback ever to play at Notre Dame Stadium to just looking helpless out there? I think that was a heck of a security blanket to have where if you needed to check down, to, you could check down to Travis Etienne and he might break that thing anytime he touched the ball and they just don't have that now. And you've got a quote in there from an assistant saying, yeah, basically every time it's second down, they throw a screen. Um, I think uh, it's time for Tony Elliott, the $2 million offensive coordinator to, uh, to reevaluate what he does. One more stat on this, Stu, that I think is just eye-opening. If you look at big plays, which most teams decide define as 20-plus, Clemson is not only last in the ACC with 11 through four games, they're almost a fourth of what Virginia has. That's crazy to me because nobody looks at UVA and go, oh, yeah, that is like the most explosive offense in college football. Virginia has almost four times as many 20-yard plays as Clemson does. Well, I've had some people tell me they think that what Virginia is doing on offense right now, and look, they've got their butts kicked the last two weeks, say what you would, but like is very innovative. They're doing a lot of really innovative stuff on offense. And based on your story, Clemson is, is doing the opposite. Mailbag time. As always, send your questions to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We talked about that Cincinnati-Notre Dame game a little bit. Let's talk about the implications. Jane Dafkus, Stu and Bruce. Here's a fun problem to think about. What would you you have to believe for Cincinnati to make it to the college football playoff? Obviously, they need to win in South Bend on Saturday and then win out. Beyond that, I suspect they need some help, by the way, of conference chaos in at least two, maybe three of the Power Five conferences, and probably some key wins by opponents on their schedule to help their strength of schedule. Um, all right, let's just let's take it from there. What's their path to the playoff if they win this game? Okay, so I, uh, let's start with this uh, the low-hanging fruit on this. Yes, they need to win out. I think they really can't afford Notre Dame to lose more than one other game. If Notre Dame is 9-3, and three, we already know Indiana is not going to be a quality win for anybody because Indiana sitting at 2-2. Two and two. We suspect Indiana is probably going to be lucky to finish 7-5. and five. Uh, So if Notre Dame doesn't end up you know, holding up their end, I don't. I think they're going to have really a huge uphill battle. Now, what helps them? Save for, you know. Sorry, Wake Forest and BC fans, but I don't think they're running the table. I think the ACC being so bad, at least that's one out of the picture. Because normally Clemson was getting one spot. Now that Clemson is definitely not getting one spot. So now we're looking at the Big Ten, which I think could beat each other up pretty good, but. To me, and I, I don't want to go through all this, the possible scenarios just a month into the season, but I think they're going, if you're Cincinnati, you are going to need uh, SMU to keep winning, but you're also going to and stay undefeated till, that, till you meet them. But I think almost any conference, like if there's a one-loss SEC champ and they win the SEC, they're going to be ranked ahead of Cincinnati. If there's a one-loss Big Ten champ, there's probably a good chance that they're going to be ranked ahead of Cincinnati. Where I don't know is if Oregon loses one game and ends up 12-1 and with a win at Ohio State, I don't know if Oregon fall, is if they lose, then they're going to fall down, but will they spring back up to leapfrog them? And I don't feel that confident in the Big 12 
because look how Oklahoma has looked and people are kind of off the bandwagon now on them. So to me, I think you need, you're going to need, you can't afford a, you know, somebody in the big 12 or the Pac-12 running the table. But if they don't, then I, then I think you have a pretty good chance assuming Notre Dame holds up its end. Do you agree? Yeah, I think things have been breaking pretty much as well as they possibly could. Except uh, for the Indiana for, part. Except for the Indiana part. But um, in terms of it looks like the ACC probably won't have a legit contender. Um, that So, the, you know, that's one off the table. You need another, probably need another Power 5 champ to have two losses. Also, yeah, Indiana's not looking good. But um, SMU just went and beat TCU because they also need, I would say, at least one of the AAC teams, the team that they'll end up playing in the conference championship game, to be top like 15, a top fifteen, yeah. top twenty kind of team. Uh, so I mean, look, let's see how they look. I mean, first they, they get they have to win this game, and I hate to say it, but they probably need to win it a little bit decisively, put some style points on the board. Um, I just think, you know, this not this at least as of now, looking like it's not going to be quite as top heavy a season does bode well for the Bearcats. Um, right now, give me the percentage chance that they go to the playoff. I mean, do you really have to ask that before the I Notre do. Dame game? I have to Let's ask. revisit it after. You're the saying Notre they're going to beat them handily anyway, so just pretend that they do. So give me the percentage. I mean, chance. right now, yes. it's hard to say more than like 10%. Okay. Jeez, uh, do. Let's see how things keep breaking for I kind of hate when I ask you something like this and our number is actually like I would have said 13 percent yeah James in Los Angeles hey guys and Bruce and Antonio's story on USC last week they quoted an assistant coach saying quote there's probably 20 kids a year maybe 30 that are getting paid big money to play college football and this was before NIL and will constitute program debilitating punishments if discovered I've heard others in the media, like Brock Ewer, discuss this paying of players cheating as if it's common knowledge. What's the deal? If it was discovered that Alabama paid Tua $200,000 to commit to Alabama, they would vacate all of their wins for three years and be ineligible for any bowl games for three to, he says three to five years. It wouldn't be quite that. Saban and his staff would be fired, da, da, da. If everybody knows about this, why haven't any real accusations occurred? What do you guys know? James in Los Angeles. Here's where I would start. The, the key words in James is question or there's four words if it was discovered the hard part of this is actually proving a bunch of stuff you have to go back a lot of our listeners probably don't even know this name i know you remember it albert means albert means was one of the biggest recruits in the country like figuratively and literally a 340 pound defensive lineman um who basically was kind of auctioned off uh, as part one of the high school coaches was really aggrieved by this, and that's how stuff comes out. You need somebody. Like, I can't tell you how many um, allegations and things I've heard from coaches who have recruited guys. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from coaches who have talked to high school coaches and then have told me a story. The hard part of that is, where does that go where somebody it can be substantiated? It's really, really hard. I mean, the Miami stuff that Charles Robinson and Yahoo wrote about, what you had was somebody in the middle. It's rare to get a booster to turn on his school, but that's what was going on. You had a really oddball guy in there in Nevin Shapiro, and that's how a lot of that came to light. 
but it just doesn't happen. The Reggie Bush stuff happened at, with USC because there was a runner or handler who was pissed off. There's always, whenever those scandals happen, is always there's always an aggrieved party. If you have you need a, if somebody you have, to be aggrieved so much so that they're willing to go to the media. If you have a player's family getting money, getting jobs, it's just one of those things that is hard for people to get held to the fire on. And so, I, I mean, like I, I looked into some stuff when I was working on Meat Market of things I had heard, and it just, it's hard to get it in print. You can't just, like it's not a message board where you can, where you can just throw something out and, and there it is, you know? And I think the stuff that people are more likely to get into trouble for is usually, uh, you know, this, this somebody got merchandise or something that's like much more like most most kids who are of the you know like of that caliber of game changing program you know stuff they didn't make their decision because somebody gave them gave their family a bunch of free gear. That's not what is probably a deciding factor on that. So it's. I don't know. It's always been murky, and it's one of those things where you hear about a ton if you talk to a lot of coaches and you talk to a lot of um, people around the country. And it's just, it's just part of the. I think it's just part of the this kind of business. If anybody out there listening right now has proof, and I mean hard proof, that a college player got paid, email the audiblepod at gmail.com. But if it's just like, hey, my my brother. My brother's barber said that he heard that such and such recruit got, a, you know, 100K to go play. Not much we can do with that. Stu, this question from Evan Nelson. Big fan of the pod. Thank you, Evan. Looking across the coaching carousel of college football and how poorly so many hires have gone, I've begun to wonder how important head coaching experience actually is for Power 5 candidates. At least group of five coaches moving up. At least group of five coaches if you look at the hires, it seems by the eye test, the better way to go is hire an assistant who, who has to build a staff from the ground up versus a group of five coach who brings in all of his group of five coordinators and position coaches. If you were FSU, Tennessee, Auburn, or Nebraska, would you rather an established coach from a lesser job or a coordinator to position coach that has enough good relationships to pull in a quality staff? Stu, what do you think? I think Evan makes a really good, brings up a really good, um, an interesting thing here that doesn't often get discussed. Because right, you see a Tom Herman, you see a Scott Frost. Like, how did this, how did this go so badly? They they won at such a high level at the Group of Five program, and then meanwhile, a Sam Pittman, career assistant coach, uh, goes into Arkansas and has the success he's having. I I do think that's a valid point about these Group of Five coaches when they get the head coaching job. They feel loyal to their assistants who helped them get the job. And they, I mean, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott Frost basically brought his entire uh, UCF staff to Nebraska. And, well, wait a minute. We're, this is different now. You're, this is a different level of recruiting. Um, it, it would really help if you had some guys on your staff who have recruited in the Big Ten or recruited in the SEC um, or the Big 12 or whatever. So, yeah, that's a tough spot. Like, it's not often that a that a coach gets a job somewhere and then just says, you know, thanks for your help, guys. Uh, I'm I'm going else. I'm I'm going to get completely different. Can you think of a? I can. Yeah. 
Uh, Urban Meyer went from Bowling Green to Utah to Florida. He had his core group of guys. They won national titles. Um, and I'm not dismissing what... Oh, I was asking the opposite. Oh, I'm Can sorry. Can you think of one where a guy got a job and then just didn't bring anybody? Yeah, Nick him? Saban went from Michigan State. I'll be not a group. That is a famous one because... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's urban legend, but the story is that he sent a plane back to East Lansing to pick up the assistants and none of them got on it. Yeah. Um, look, Matt Campbell went from group of five to Iowa State, took most of his guys. That has worked out really well. I mean, so there are, there are definitely examples. I don't want to say... You know, and and Vanderbilt's not a group of five, but it's certainly not. The, it's on the bottom end of the food chain of the SEC. James Franklin took a bunch of those dudes to Penn State. It's worked out really well. Um, so let's say somebody, a USC, a Nebraska, I don't know, doesn't matter, hires Jamie Chadwell from Coastal Carolina. This is the good example. Go on, and I'm going to fill something in with you on this specific okay. one. Would you maybe recommend to Jamie Chad, hey, bring a couple of your guys, you know, the guys you can't live without, but maybe it's, maybe hire some assistants you haven't worked with before, but who are have a, like, keep Dante Williams. He's a great Pac-12 recruiter. You know, like you're going to need some guys who've been there before. So with from my understanding with Jamie Chadwell, who had a great year last year at Coastal Carolina people, at least a lot of college coaches, very intrigued by his offense. He, he does not have... Uh, power five any experience of working in a power five nor does most of his staff they're all um they're all kind of outsiders in that regard i don't think he wanted to uh, like i think that was a concern for some of the some of the sec jobs that were looking at him south carolina um tennessee where you'd think man if i i not to speak for you but i think if those places hired him, I'd be like, ooh, that's a big hire for them. But there was hesitance about the experience from a Power Five recruiting at that kind of place. Now, the flip side of this is the, and it, I'm glad you gave the example you gave. You know, if you're going to be the head coach at USC, I'm not sure you want to be told these are the, you got to hire this guy on your staff. Because no, by the way, not. keep look at this, and I'm not saying this is how Dante Williams is thinking right now, but I know it as it relates to the Oregon head coaching job. Uh, poorly kept secret. Mario Cristobal it was not exactly the biggest fan of Jim Levitt. You know, when Jim Levitt was, a lot of people, uh, Jim Levitt probably thought he should have gotten the job when Willie Taggart uh, left, and that became a very, very uh, frosty relationship. It, whoever does not, especially for the interim. Now, look, if Dante Williams goes six and four over these ten games, which is probably feels kind of realistic, I don't think Dante Williams can expect he really get, will get serious consideration for the job. But the fact that you have a guy there who who will have a lot of relationships with a lot of people, if Dante Williams is still on the staff and it's a new guy and he's being told, yeah, we we're not telling you what to, we're not telling you have to keep him, but you know, there's some kind of implication. You, we'd really like you to do that. Um, that can become a problematic dynamic in the locker room, for, especially for a for a head coach. Head coaches don't want to be told, "Hey, we really think you should you should ha- you should keep this guy or hire this person." You know, if I'm the head coach at USC, if if you're hiring me, I don't want the AD or somebody in the athletic department to dictate that. Like USC, USC already has enough challenges without that piece of it. 
I agree. I think a, a good way to not get the coach to come is to dictate to them who they can hire. I think it's more, you know, you would want him to come to that realization on his own that, hey, I'm going to need some guys with um, with experience. Uh, it's just a different recruiting alone is completely different at that level, but so is just running a program at that level. Speaking of USC, our last one comes from Lane from Virginia, frequent uh, submitter of questions. Bruce and Stu, we've always wondered what the air raid would look like with elite talent. We have our answer with USC. It really exposed USC on the defensive side of the ball since they had no experience practicing against tight ends. Oregon State rammed it down their throat with two tight end sets all night. And it's a victim of its own success. Everyone borrows from it now, so everyone recruits smaller, quicker linebackers to defend it. What do you think? Is this the, is this the death of the air raid? I don't think it is. I think that, look, Lincoln Riley is an air raid guy, except he has a he has a really good run game offensive line guy in Bill Biedenboe, and they have brought a level of physicality to it, um, whereas I think there's variations of the air raid. Dana Holgerson kind of deviated from it a lot and would get, I don't want to say would get wildly creative, but he would do a bunch of different stuff. Lincoln, I think, has his own spin on it. Mike Leach, I hate to use this, term but it's the one that's in my head so much whenever I think of it is like he's the uncut coke like he is not like that's the air raid and when people look at how much they run the football um, you go back when god I'm blanking on this kid he he used to look like Leach's son Um, god the quarterback from Spokane Uh, Connor Halliday sorry so Connor Halliday, he wanted to like that's why they were throwing it eighty five times a game. Sometimes Connor Halliday, he wasn't four man box. Hey, I'm going to chuck it, and a lot of it is really on the quarterback. How much do they want to run? How much do they want to throw? What are they checking to? And I think in the case now you have Graham, uh, who is obviously a great quarterback in the area, Graham Harrell. I think that look, they went all in on that philosophy. And there, the, the thing I would say with the air raid, and this is something that our friend John Wilner, I remember writing about a long time ago with Sonny Dykes and pointed out that no one had won an air raid. Well, no one had won a national title with an air raid. And that is true. The thing with, of it is, though, the air raid will get you, I believe, if you, if, if you have guys who really know how to run it and you can you know, recruit and develop. The air raid will get you to eight or nine wins. I don't know if the air raid you can win a national title stick strictly living off it, but you know if you're Cal um, or you're a program like that where you're probably not winning a national title anyway, and you are mired in you know three, four, five wins, it could be a very good thing because it will give you an identity. The question is, if you're USC, is that something you need to do? And I think, like I said, it to me it varies on how you approach it with Lincoln Riley. I don't think, you know, I, I think it, it's workable. The issue is going to be on the defensive side of the ball. It feels like they've upgraded talent on the defense. Now they need the offense to kind of hold up its end. But to me, I, I just think it's like how committed you are to it and what you do with it. But I, I don't think it's the end of it by any stretch. Great questions this week. Please send some more to the audiblepod at gmail.com. We've been um, answering them in our second episodes of the week. Um, it's going to be a great Saturday. Uh, I, f- I have a feeling we're going to have a, a lot to talk about on Sunday morning's episode. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.